Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to episode 42 of The Green Life. Today's episode is wonderful, and as we, we ended really strongly last year, we're going to start as strong this year with Dr. Bernie Siegel. Now, before we get into the episode, I just want to give a big shout out to Namawell for the J2 juicer, which has been powering The Green Life for a few months now, and it is the best juicer I can advise you if you want to get into juicing. It's a, a masticator, so it keeps your juices raw, but it's very fast easy to use easy to clean and it's really delightful and comes with 10 years minimum warranty it also allows you to save money on your produce because it takes all the juice out so it's a great experience it's 10% uh, off if you go through my link so it's in the show notes if you want to get yourself one and save some money I also want to advise that I have a luxury retreat here in Northern Portugal that will happen in May. It's in a beautiful palace. The package is fully inclusive and we will experience beautiful outings to Jerez National Park, Porto, but also yoga every day, plant-based food all day and amazing sessions with sound healers, massage therapists, osteopath, an integrative doctor consultation. I mean, you will get so much out of this experience. It really, it, it's all about setting you up for success for your health and I really care about that. So if you want to know more, go into the show notes for the link and reach out if you have any questions. Okay, back to the episode with Dr. Siegel, who actually prefers to be called Bernice, which is why I call him that way in the show is from New York and I love New York so very close to my heart and he was a surgeon doctor but he decided to leave surgery behind to really take time to spend it with patients he was working a lot with children and really trying to heal them or more like get them to heal themselves and he's so humble he always looks at the, the patients as teachers that really taught him to be compassionate to look within and he really had, had a full life Dr. Siegel is 90 years old and as he joins us today, it's just after a little fall, so he wasn't feeling amazing, but he still gave us so much energy, so much love, and this is what he's all about. In fact, his first book is a bestseller that everybody should have on their shelves. It's called Love, Medicine and Miracles, and I truly believe this book can set you up for success. All these books are all about teaching people to heal from forgiveness, from love, and I really feel that he has given so much to the world. I absolutely love him. So I will put all these details in the show notes because his resume is amazing and everybody should look him up. He also has Love, Animals and Miracles, which I will mention because as you know, I love animals and in fact, everything I do is to really cater for the dogs that we are saving, that we're rescuing, as well as creating a project that will help more and more animals here in Portugal, where sadly the laws are not great when it comes to animal welfare. So we're trying to change that. And I really believe that communicating with animals comes with from a place of heart space. And Dr. Siegel really knows how to do that and the stories that he has. So brace yourself for a wonderful episode. Let's get talking to this amazing human being. Welcome, Dr. Siegel. Hello, Bernie. Welcome to The Green Life. Thank you so, so much for making the time, uh, especially as I know you're recovering. So I, I really appreciate having you here. And I need to say that I've been a fan for a long time. You were a speaker at uh, my coaching school, IIN, and I, I finished my coaching course in 2013. So um, you were very inspirational to me. And something you said made me leave my banking job to actually 
do something more with my life. So thank you. <laughs> But well, now, let me, let me add a word. What I tell people, you can have a dream that will answer what you should do. But draw a picture. When when you don't know what to do, draw pictures of like what job should I take, where should I live, and then look at them the next day, and you'll know what the right one is. Uh, mm. based on the colors and the appearance and lots of things yeah oh that's beautiful i need to do that i have a few questions that i need to answer for myself but if people don't know you they haven't been blessed with your work yet should we give them a little background about you know your story and how you became a doctor and also how you changed your practice because you went from surgery into actually helping people listening to patients and their loved ones so i would love to hear your your story how what inspired you you know, principles, so to speak. Um, one is, again, listening to your inside and what is right for you. Um, and, you know, and asking questions. What should I do? What's the right thing? And another is what I call the cover-up uh, that we do when we can't deal with our feelings or don't want to. Mm. And... Those are things, in a sense, that I learned. I mean, I was lucky in the sense of having parents who were therapeutic but drove me crazy. Because imagine coming home from school, having a horrible day, everything goes wrong, and your mother says, it was meant to be, God is redirecting you, something good will come of this. I'd look at her like, aren't you going to help me? <laughs> What kind of craziness? So I'd go sit on my bed and say, God, my mother's no help. Can you pay attention? But I learned with time she was right because things happened that wouldn't have happened if, you know, the adverse thing hadn't happened. Mm. And, um, Ma, I have to make a decision. Do what makes you happy. Ma, I need some help making a decision. Do what makes you happy. Oh, Ma, you're no help. <laughs> But <laughs> I learned she was so right because, again, with cancer patients, You see, what treatment should I have? Where should I go? What should I do? They all came up with the same answer. Let your heart make up your mind. Mm -hmm. And it was what my mother was saying. And then this one, I think, is really important. The uncovering. I was having a tough time as a surgeon. You couldn't cure everybody. I cared about people. And I went to a workshop by Elizabeth Kugel-Ross. And she said to me, Bernie, draw a picture. So I drew this outdoor scene and I showed it to her. And that's when I learned how meaningful. And she said something like, why is eight important to you? I said, what kind of question is that? You drew eight trees, you know, and to me, it's what's the big deal. But everything she asked me had an answer. Mm -hmm. And one was, what are you covering up? I said, why are you asking me that? You used a white crayon on a paper that's already white. You added a layer. And I realized the covering up was all the stuff I didn't deal with or bring forth or get help with. You know, when you can't cure people, complications happen. It was just so painful. And I did a lot of children's surgery. And it was like, why would God do this to kids? So anyway, then years later, I was paint and I am I'm, I'm an artist I paint portraits and the house is filled with every 
body in our family having a portrait and everything else. And let me tell you one that'll make you laugh. Because when I'd come home, see, I knew that the painting healed me. So I would pick out an animal, a child, anybody, and say, sit. And I'd paint their portrait. One day I come home, everybody was running away from the house. And I mean, everybody, we had dozens of pets. We were saving everybody's life, you know, with four legs. And I yelled out the window of the car, what's happened? Is there a fire in the house? Where are you going? This little squeaky voice. No, we're tired of sitting. <laughs> we don't want to sit anymore. And I said, all right, I'll paint the portrait of myself. And they all turned around, went right back in the house. <laughs> I, a mirror. I painted a portrait of myself. But if you come in the house, you don't know it's me. You what say, you how mean? can that be? Yeah. I'm in a cap, a mask, and a gown. I'm in the operating room, you know, and I painted a portrait of myself dressed for surgery. And you don't know it's me. I mean, it's all covered up. On the other hand, when I was painting a portrait of my wife, I thought, oh, I'll put her in a beautiful evening gown. And, and it didn't look right. Mm. And then one day she came riding her bike, you know, back to the house from an exercise, you know, journey around the neighborhood. Um, I said to her, oh, that's you, when she jumped off her bike. And in a couple of days, I had painted a portrait of her standing, holding her bike, you know, and looking beautiful. But I had no trouble painting myself hidden. Mm. And um, I realized, I say, what it was, was me burying everything. And Did I you think about that question? Cover and deal with my feelings. Mm. And uh, when you start doing that, then you really start living your life. And the other fascinating thing was when I say uncover, what's uncovered up here? Mm. I shaved my head the same year I did that painting. When was that? 1970, middle 1970s. So everybody know? had long hair, but you. <laughs> yes. Oh, our kids were mortified. <laughs> oh, dad, what are you doing? You're enough of a problem already, you know, because... But then they learned it was good to have a crazy father because when they did something wrong at school or even at work when they grew up, what did they hear people say? You know who his father is. So they didn't <laughs> get punished. It was like, he's got my genes. So what do you expect from him? Yeah. <laughs> That's great. But what, what Jung said was the reason monks shave their head is to uncover their spirituality. When I read that, I said, oh, my God, I didn't understand why I had to shave my head. What I needed to uncover was my spirituality. Did you and feel like you had to shave? Like, did you feel yeah, I'm going to shave my so head? That's why. When, and then I thought of Elizabeth saying, what are you covering up? Mm. And all of those things that it, it just made sense and fit together. And the other thing that I found quite interesting i named the painting the high priest <laughs> that's i thought what did you put that on there for you know because it was you know hung in shows and things like this and to have a name the high priest and you're dressed as a surgeon 
But when I came across the Uncover Your Spirituality writing by Jung, I thought, wow, now I understand. all, And it's all the stuff you don't understand about yourself. Why did I say the high priest? Why did I paint myself covered up? What, what am I doing? Yeah, it's your unconscious and that inner wisdom saying, you've got to see this and understand yourself. And wow. boy, it, it woke me up. And it still hangs in our living room. But again, if you came in the house, you wouldn't know it's me. Mm. It's a hidden man. Yeah. Yeah. And how did that affect your career? Because I guess as you change, maybe you couldn't really work the same way yeah, that you had before. It really redirected me. These are the exact words from a woman. I started going to workshops to learn how to take care of people. Mm. You know, some of the well-known authors from years ago writing about cancer and Carl Simonton and others, um, Getting Well Again, I think was his book. So um, I went to a workshop in, that was in Connecticut. What shocked me, you got 150 people in the room, one doctor. You. I couldn't believe it. This is run by a doctor to help cancer patients. And I'm the only doctor in the state of Connecticut who showed up. And boy, did that teach me something about doctors. They're all treating diseases and not people. Mm. And the gift to me, I realized later what a compliment it was. My patients sat around me in the room. If I had been a problem, they would have sat at the other end of the room. Yeah. One young woman was sitting next to me and I said to her, what made you come? She said, you're a nice guy. I feel better when I'm in the office with you, but I can't take you home with me. <laughs> so I need to know how to live between office visits. That changed my entire life. And inspired said, your oh, book, right? I'm going to help people live. Yeah, what ended up in the book is what I learned, helping people live and that they don't die when they're supposed to when they're enjoying living. Oh, I have so many funny stories. Yeah, they're, they're funny stories about people who are supposed to be dead who then, just to put it in words, you're in Connecticut. They tell you you have a few months to live. So you move to Colorado. I said, what are you moving to Colorado for? It's so beautiful here. I want to die in the mountains. I said to his family, call me, I'll come to the funeral. I really love the guy. Three years go by, no phone call. So I call up to say, what the hell's wrong with you? I asked you to call me. Why didn't you call me to come to the funeral? Guess who answered the phone? He answered the phone. Yeah. I said to him, how come you didn't die? It was so beautiful here, I forgot to die. <laughs> And that's when you begin to realize what it does within you. You see, like you're laughing at me now. Oh, no, well, no, no, you with you. But think, all right, with me, yeah. But think of what your hormones are telling your body. She's having a good time. She enjoys life. Keep her healthy. You know, yeah. that sort of thing. And yeah. yeah, and I was considered the controversial Dr. Siegel. Because I talked about these things and other doctors were saying, oh, that's crazy. Where Did you do any research? Uh, that was another thing that drove me crazy. Nobody would support my research because they all said, that's crazy. 
not going to make a difference what a patient feels or does or, you know. And then other doctors would say, you didn't do any research. I said, nobody is helping me. I don't have, you know, $100,000 to do some research. Um, finally, after many years, you know, research began to get done because they saw what was true. And uh, then, you know, science and medicine change and you begin to study emotions and feelings and uh and because i have so many really what i call funny stories of people who finally gave themselves permission to be who they wanted to be you know you don't want to be a lawyer but your parents want you to be a lawyer see that's a, a um a donald trump story he's mm -hmm. not who he wanted to be he's who his parents wanted him to be and I wrote a letter to the USA Today when he was running for president to begin with. I said, what everybody should do when they meet Donald is say, Donald, I love you. He won't know how to handle that. Because mm. he never got it from his parents. Published my letter, but it's so true. If you want him to calm down, just say, I love you. Then what's he going to say? You know, what excuse can he make? You didn't say anything bad about him. Mm. I love you. And that's what I began to see, that people gave up their life to make parents happy or others happy. And then they don't mind losing their life. You know, the disease comes because of the chemistry that's within you is not healing and protecting. And what I saw was, like this young lady said, uh, I want to know how to live between office visits. So when they started living, they didn't okay. die when they were supposed to. And yeah. that's what yeah. changed doctors. They couldn't deny that. We had one fellow, I've written about him, who was a landscaper. And um, I operated on him. He had carcinoma of the stomach. I said, we should do some more surgery. You still have cancer cells in your lymph nodes. He said, no. I got to have a home and make the world beautiful because he was, you know, a landscaper. He said, so when I die, I'll leave a beautiful world. He never came back to the office. He refused chemotherapy, everything. Six years later, his nurse, our nurse, handed me his chart. I said, he's dead. What are you giving me this chart for? She said, open the door. <laughs> so I opened the door to the examining room and there sat john hi i have a hernia from lifting boulders in my landscape business and i mean this literally when i say he became my therapist i spent a lot of time taking walks with him in the woods seeing how beautiful the world was speaking at he and his wife's 70th wedding anniversary to tell people what wonderful teachers they were about life and <clears throat> that's how i began to learn to pass that kind of thing on to other patients. Mm. And uh, and also how few people are willing to do that, see? But what if I don't live longer? Then I failed again. Oh, my. Yeah. We sent a hundred letters to patients from my office saying, you want to live a longer, better life, come to a meeting. Because I have learned a lot of things that can help. Twelve women showed up. I couldn't believe it. You got cancer. I offer you help and you don't come. 
And I, that's when I realized how afraid people are of doing things wrong. And my yeah, wife yeah. said, they're exceptional women. So that's what our group became, exceptional cancer patients. And my partner, Richard Selzer is his name, when I came back to the office after deciding to change, he, he yelled at me when I walked in the room, he yelled, you're gone. I thought, what the hell was he talking about? I said, what, do you, what do you mean I'm gone? He said, you're not the same person you were on Friday. Oh, wow. You're going to leave surgery. He oh. said, you're a different person. I thought he was nuts. But within two years, I had retired from surgery to help people live. Yeah. Amazing. Um, you know, you said something doctors don't really... Uh, they only know how to deal with disease, and it's true. How do you feel when doctors give a timeline to a patient, you know, like someone with cancer saying, you only have three months to live? Well, I always felt you. that was terrible. Yeah. You see, that uh, again, I did a lot of work with drawings because I learned how much information was in them. And at one medical school, we had almost 100 students sitting in the room. So I said to all of them, draw a picture of yourself working as a doctor. One picture had a patient in it. Mm. All the rest had no patients. Diplomas, desks, equipment, no human beings. The one kid is going to be a doctor because he was standing in front of a lady in a wheelchair and handing her a tissue, you know? Yeah, compassion. Yeah, not a prescription, not operating, yeah. Amazing. And that, it, it blew my mind. I didn't expect that. When I saw all of them piled up in front of me, you know, because we were speaking in a little auditorium, it blew me, my mind. And so I began to emphasize that uh, to physicians and to really think about, what are you doing? Who are you taking care of? And to, you know, know themselves. And, and in a sense, it was to help heal people. But you see, that's the other thing. When you help heal people, they didn't die when they were supposed to. Mm -hmm. you know? Monday morning, we have more heart attacks, strokes, suicides, and illnesses. Why? Because I don't like Monday and my job and my dad and my dad. So that's why I say, let your heart make up your mind. I mean, those statements were put on the refrigerators of people with cancer. And they told me what they had put on their refrigerator. You know, all these let your heart make up your mind statements. And they're the ones who went on living and taught everybody else how to survive. So you could come up with a list of what were the things you did and then pass it on. I call it survivor behavior. There's certain behaviors that tell you this person's going to live longer. It's like getting back to do what makes you happy. You know, mm -hmm. they're giving their body a live message. And I mean, I never stop talking because all these people and stories keep popping into my head. Oh, but great. one lady had polio as a child. Her body lost quite a few muscles. And she said, I didn't like my body. And then they tell me I'm going to die, you know, in a couple of years. So I decided I don't want to die not liking myself and my body. 
So I put up a mirror and laid down naked in front of it on the floor and started loving my body, you know, that I saw in the image. And she said, I started with my toes and I would send love and then move up another inch and another inch. And she did not die within a couple of years. Her cancer disappeared and she went on living. You see, because I mean, the two things, she had the cancer, but she also had developed a neurological disease mm. that was paralyzing her. And that and the polio and the cancer, she didn't want to die fed up with life in her body. So she started loving herself and every problem disappeared. Amazing. No. Well, our, our cells are vibrations, so they feel when we're sending something wrong or negative to it or something positive to it, right? To them, yeah. I should say. Yeah, no, I mean, it literally changes your body chemistry. Mm. Various yeah. hormones and other things that are circulating and the cells are interacting with, if you hate life, they're told that and they help you get out of here. And that's why relationships are so important. See, women outlive men with the same cancers. People who own a pet live longer and healthier lives than the people who don't when they have heart attacks or cancer or anything else. And again, the women are involved with people and relationships and are more likely to outlive men. And these are things people said in my office. See? I said to a man after he said, there's no point in living. I can't work anymore. I said, turn your head to the left. You have a wife and three children. I think they're a good reason. I couldn't believe he would say, there's no point in living. I can't work anymore. And, what did he say when you asked him, when you showed him? Then I had one woman who was amazing because I expected her, I think, to live about two or three years. And she just kept going. And I said, what's happening? She said, I have seven children. I can't die till they're all married and out of the house. <laughs> 20 years later, her last child left home and her cancer came back. Oh, wow. Now tell me how you can control cancer for 20 years. But those are the crazy, bizarre stories that were right in front of me and I couldn't deny them. And it's always... You know, you need to be asked to lecture or speak. I could never stop because I'm always thinking of more and more people that I got to meet and know and how they, they taught have. me about living. Yeah. Yeah. So, people know this. I mm -hmm. had my 90th birthday, I don't know, in October. Yeah, about two or three months ago. And we had a great big party. Happy and, belated. Thank you. And I don't think it's an accident. You know, I'm not trying not to die or prove anything um, because I've had, you know, I have some problems with my body and from accidents and other things. And it's worn out and gotten tired, but I still spend time loving it like that lady with her mirror. You, have to, you practice what you preach, right? Yeah, what happened was, I might just tell you that I fell down in my bedroom. Oh, yeah. I had like a dizzy spell and I'm walking to the bathroom and I fell over backwards 
bumped my head gently, landed on my hip, and it shows you how your life affects your health. I have to go back another step. After my wife died, nine months later, my heart beat became irregular. And I, I knew something was going to happen because when I found her dead in our bedroom, she died quietly in her sleep. Um, I could feel a pain in my heart, like somebody stabbed me. And so nine months later, my heart is irregular. So I was put on an anticoagulant. And from the fall, there was no serious injury, but a little, I'm sure, crack in the bone in my hip. And the bleeding started and my leg turned purple with blood. And um, so I had to end up going to a hospital to be treated and cared for. And it started a whole new thing, you know, in my life. Um, and again, I keep learning, you know, because I'm not the person I was uh, before that crazy little thing happened to me. And uh, I still have some balance issues and stuff like that. So, you know, it, it's the people who are with me and will say to me, use your walker, hold it. Because I walk, you see, it's where my mind is. If I'm having a nice day, I don't think I need a walker, you know. Um, yeah. but, and I learned a lot from being in the hospital. Then that's when you're the patient and you learn what everybody's uh, going through. So, it, and I, as I say, I keep learning how these things happen to us. Mm -hmm. And you've got to keep learning and think about why did this happen? What did I do? It's not blaming yourself, but correcting and not making those kinds of mistakes again. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you know, the title of this episode with you is the miracle of healing and it's so appropriate. And before we started recording the call, you were, you mentioned you have an angel and I'd like to go a little bit more oh, into the course. esoteric part of it, because I think you have a lot of signs and you have a book, which is more about miracles. I have to go back to my childhood. Yeah. I'd forgotten to tell you about that. I'm almost three years old. I mean, I knew what my age was because my mother was pregnant at the time this happened. When she came into the room with a big tummy, I knew how old I was. Mm. Um, but I had seen people in the house, um, carpenters working and putting nails in their mouth. In the old days, they didn't have all the tools. So they'd have the nails in their mouth, pull them out, bang, 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 and pull out another one. I'm in my bedroom with a toy telephone, I take it apart and put the pieces in my mouth. See, I'm going to fix it now. I aspirated them and was choking to death. It's the most painful thing that's ever happened to me in my life. Your body muscles are contracting and, and sucking as hard as they can to get air in, and it can't. And God, the pain was horrible. I left my body and I didn't know what that meant, except, you know, maybe you're dying and so forth. And then I saw my body lying on the bed being raised up. I thought it was having a seizure, but I learned later it's my angel, George. He did a Heimlich maneuver because after my body was lifted up, outshot all the pieces 
And then I was literally sucked back into the body because it wasn't dying anymore. And I was very upset. Now that may sound crazy. The first words out of my mouth when I didn't die were, who did that? Because being dead was wonderful for a three-year-old. You're out of your body, floating around, seeing, thinking, all the things we understand now from the near-death you know, studies. But I thought, I mean, I, you know, today I have to laugh when you think of a kid yelling, who did that? I wanted to be dead. Why did you do it? But my, my angel George told me later, he said, no, you aren't supposed to be dead. So I saved your life. Now, how do I know it's George and who he is? Later in my life, when, oh, I told you I drew that picture for Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Yeah. I put George in that picture because I had done a meditation at some workshop and they said, take a walk along a path. You'll meet an inner guide coming down the path. And yeah, who did I meet? It was a fellow named George, which disappointed me because I thought, where's Jesus? Where's Moses? Where's Abraham? What's George doing here? Um, and he looked dressed funny. I didn't understand what he was wearing. Crazy hat on his head and other you know, garments around his shoulders. And um but I thought, what am I going to do? It's George, so it'll be George. After that, we would have conversations, and I heard him talking to me. I didn't realize it was him, but because you're taking a walk and you hear a voice talking to you. You know, I mentioned my father died laughing. Why? I was walking that morning before going to the hospital, and I heard George say to me, do you know how your parents met? No, ask your mother when you get to the hospital. I walk in and I said, how did you two meet? She said, oh, I was with a bunch of girls with a, rep a terrible reputation I didn't know because I was on vacation. I was sitting with them on the beach. Coming down the beach were a bunch of boys. They tossed coins to see who would get the other girls. And your father lost and got me. <laughs> and that's what started my father laughing and dying laughing with more stories my mother was telling me. And you'd say, well, who, how did you hear a voice? But I, I learned later that was George. Mm -hmm. You know, when you hear somebody talking to you, I mean, there are even times, it's just unbelievable, all these experiences. I'd go out of the house to get in the car and a voice would say, go to the animal shelter. So I'd jump in the car and go to the animal shelter. I'd walk in, there'd be a dog sitting there. What's his name? His name was always something important to me. And I'd say, all right, I'll take him home. I mean, it could be a name like my father's name, Simon. Um, my name in a past life was Brady. There's a dog there named Brady. I take him home. Um, it, it was just incredible. No matter what I answered, that's why I always say it came from God knows where, mm -hmm. people would say, oh, that's his name. And sometimes the dogs had been there 15 minutes and I'd walk in and they're sitting in front of me and say, what's his name? It was like you were supposed to take that one home. And cats too. <laughs> um, 
And I never knew whether they know all the names of my family members. They know whether they, I thought, are they cheating on me? So I'll take all these animals home. But <laughs> no, they really weren't. Uh, they were telling you what the dog's name was. So our house has been a zoo. Oh, uh, mine is a zoo. I hear yeah. you. <laughs> uh, everybody had a meaningful name. And well, talking about taking care of patients. Um, our son, Jeffrey, uh, came home one day, he said, hey, dad, uh, I found this dog at a garage I stopped at. It's a black, I mean, not dog, cat, black and white cat. I said, his, her name is Miracle. He looks at me. I said, Jeffrey, I was just told by a lady that she had a dream. A cat appeared in it and said, my name is Miracle. This is how you should treat your cancer. Now, you know, the thing, again, that blows my mind, this lady is not a doctor. How does she know about all these drugs and different things? In a dream, the dog told her, I mean, the cat said, my name is Miracle. This is what you should do. And she did and was cured. Wow. So when he came in with the cat, I said, all right, the cat's name is Miracle. Wow. And she was a miracle in terms of her behavior and everything else. She lived to about 30 and died of a reaction to a medication treating her hypothyroidism because they didn't want to give her radioactive iodine with all the other creatures in the house. Um, but she went everywhere with me. Um and I mean it. And everybody realized you don't have to worry about her because she was in the hospital, nursing homes everywhere, and everybody loved her. Mm. And I have to tell you this, Crazy Siegel, one of the veterinarians in town <clears throat> put up a sign about a dog show on the town green. So I took Miracle and a dog we had named Furphy because he had so much fur to be entered in the show. The veterinarian said, this is a dog show. What are you doing here with a cat? I said, she thinks she's a dog. I can tell from her behavior. So I brought her. I don't want her to hurt her feelings. And he knew it was pointless trying to get Siegel to leave, you know. So he left me there. All the dogs, can you imagine the dogs in a dog show running up to a cat and sniffing it and walking around it? A miracle never hissed, never picked up a you know, pull up with the nails on it to get them away. She just rubbed noses with everybody. So she became the hit of the show. And the next year, that's the part that I love. A sign went up again, dog show. But at the end of this sign, there was a new line for dogs only. And I thought, that's wonderful. He's telling me, Siegel, don't show up again. Because <laughs> she got all the attention. But, did she win? Huh? Did she win the competition? Yeah, right. She won <laughs> the customer's love. Yeah. But um, the animals are also great teachers because they have a consciousness too. There's a book called um, Straight from the Horse's Mouth by Amelia Kincaid, who became my friend. Because when I heard her say, oh, I talk to animals, I thought, why don't you just say I'm crazy? Um and she said, no, you quiet your mind, you will hear what the animals are saying. 
And I started doing that. And it was amazing. I could talk to them, you know, like when some of them ran out of the house at night and I said, I would say in my mind, come back. It's dangerous out there in the woods. Meet me at the kitchen door. And I'd go there 10 minutes later, open the door. There was a cat sitting there, you know, and um, it, it blew my mind, but I knew it was true. Mm -hmm. And uh, so those are all the things I think people need to open their minds to, their consciousness, talking to their body, talking to their pets. Um, and it's not to feel guilty. You know, we're all going to die someday. Um, but again, everybody, all the seniors in our family, including my wife, had no trouble dying. I mean, my wife died in her sleep. So when I went to wake her up in the morning, uh, that's when my heart had this sharp pain because I touched her hand and it was cold. And I thought, oh, she died last night. And wham, you know. And yes, and my heart. You see, that's my love organ. So it felt mm -hmm. it and was affected by her death. But her parents, my parents, uh, none of them had any trouble dying. Uh, and I learned that from my patients. So I didn't fight with, you know, parents uh, to say, no, you have to do this, you have to do that. Yeah. And um, yeah, even my, my mother, who followed all my instructions, and her doctors couldn't believe she didn't die. She had a type of leukemia. Uh, and they started telling their patients to do what she was doing. She taught them that what she was doing was not an accident, you know, that her son had taught her and what she was doing. But I told her doctors, she will not die with me in her room. When she finally went to the hospital, I said, so don't think I'm not loving her when I keep walking out of the room. It's not about me, it's about her. She's not going to let me down and die. And sure enough, late that afternoon, I stepped out of the room, I came back and they said, yep, you're right. You know, she died quietly when you were near. And uh, those are the things I've learned and I use them to teach people um, that, that we have this ability. But when you lose in a sense, control of your life, and it's imposed upon you by others, right, then everything becomes a failure. You know, what, what you do as a child, if you live or die, how much money you make. Um, that's why I brought up Trump, that because uh, there was one guy who was a lawyer and wanted to be a violinist. And his parents said, no. We're not proud of a violinist. We want a lawyer. He developed cancer. He shut his office. Picked up his violin, got a job in an orchestra. And again, a few years later, he's playing a violin, not dead. Mm -hmm. What, what he always wanted. Sure, honey, go ahead. You want to be a violinist? You want to be a musician? Enjoy yourself. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah, isn't it isn't it interesting and slightly sad that we almost have to face adversity and in this case through a disease for other people to allow us to be who we want to be. Otherwise, we always have to kind of fall into a mold and yeah. be what other people expect us to be. 
um it's interesting but then when you're sick they're like oh do you know they, they don't judge you anymore like they'll support anything you want to do it yes it works in two ways one you can learn from it see mm -hmm. because that yes people may give you permission when they know you're not going to live very long to do whatever you want live where you want to live just go ahead the other was what people can learn because what I learned to say to people when they said, oh, I have this disease, that disease, I say, what is it like? I want one word from you. What is it like to experience this disease? Now, if somebody said it's a gift, it's a wake-up call, I don't have to worry about them. See, they're, they're rebirthing themselves. But when they say draining, failure, roadblock, my next question is, what in your life fits that word? Okay. A lady who was being admitted to the hospital with severe pain from uh, migraine headaches. I happened to ask her, what's the pain like? She said, pressure. I said, what's the pressure in your life that needs to be alleviated? And she wasn't my patient. I was just in the emergency room. They were telling me, Sadie, be quiet. Stop all your talking. You're hurting her more, you know. So I went in and talked to her. Fifteen minutes later, the nurse came over. Bernie, yeah, it's her marriage. Her headache's gone. She's on the way home now to straighten out her marriage. Wow. And that was somebody who was having recurrent migraine headaches and they disappear when she connected them. Failure. What is failure in your life? Well, my body failed. I have cancer. That's not my question. Oh, in my life, my parents committed suicide when I was a child. I must have been a failure as a child. Wow. Yeah. And again, all these words over and over, you know, I, I use it for myself too. Uh, if I'm having something, I say, well, okay, what are you feeling? What's going on? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Years ago, my own memory comes back. I was having vertigo, you know, dizzy spells, everything spinning around. And it was hell. You get out of bed and you can't stand up. And then one morning I got out of bed and I'm going, oh, how am I going to get to the hospital? And the voice inside me said, hey, dumbbell. <laughs> to do what you do with your patients. What are you experiencing? I said, the world is spinning around. Yes, you've got to slow it down and do less. You were doing a lot at the time? We were traveling, literally, my wife and I, all around the world to give lectures mm. for cancer patients and healing. And uh, what a schedule, what a life. And I thought, oh, what a perfect symptom. If I'm having vertigo all the time, I can't get out of bed. I can't travel. Um, and as soon as I realized that and took better control of my life, boom, you know, the symptoms subsided. You know, it's interesting now, I'm 90, as I told you, I still have some dizzy spells but it's more to do with neurological being 90 than my, you know, emotions. 
but I still keep using myself and my body and asking, what are you going through? What is happening? And uh, then I get therapy from myself. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful when you know how to use your own tools. Um, more, I got to tell you. Mm -hmm. I was on the roof of the house fixing something. I stepped off onto a wooden ladder. I had climbed up on the ladder and it had been fine. But when I stepped off, the ladder broke. The rungs broke off. And I fell to the ground, you know, to the pavement, the driveway. On the way down, I thought, I could die, you know, if I land on my head. I mean, it was squash, you know, my brain, everything. And I felt such peace like I've never had before. Yeah, you could die. <laughs> and I, I was like floating, I swear. And then, boom, what happened? My feet hit the ground. Now, I have no way of explaining that. You, you, your ladder breaks. Why did my legs get tangled in it in the first place? It was like somebody took me and put me down. Did you and feel it in your body like you were lifted or supported at all? No, I just felt like I was floating. Okay. You know, because my mind was on, you, you could die and be crippled. Yeah. You know, it wasn't, oh, I, this is wonderful. No. <laughs> <laughs> and when my feet hit the ground, that's when I was stunned. How could that be? You know, why didn't they get tangled in the ladder? It made no sense at all. And that's when I began thinking about George, too. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought, okay, that's the explanation I have. He took me again and put me down. You know, I fell over, I bumped my head a little bit, but nothing, no concussion, no emergency room, nothing. And well, the oh, reason, if I can interrupt you a second, said, the reason... Sorry. Let me finish the story. Yeah, I sure. My angel that saved me. Mm -hmm. And the guy came up and said, yes, you have an angel. I know his name. I said, really? He said, yeah. What did you say when the ladder broke? I said, oh, shit. He said, that's your angel's name. And he also has helped me because, you know, how many times you trip when you're walking or something else <laughs> happens and you yell, oh, shit. And... <laughs> Then nothing happens. And I start laughing because, oh, my angel is here. So I have two of them, George and oh, shit. <laughs> but the reason I, I asked you if you were supported um, is because something happened to me. We have um, next to our laundry room. It's on the outside of the house because we have this old farmhouse in Portugal. And um, so nothing is really connected. You have to go outside. But there is a little pathway right next to it. It's very, very narrow. And I was going around it where I could just go into the garden from there. It's not the safest place, but we kind of use it because it's short. And I tripped on a rock. And I literally, I thought, okay, that's it. I'm going to break an arm because of the way I was falling. But I literally felt supported under my armpits. And I landed on my feet. And nothing happened. It was like just a two-meter yeah. you know, fall. But I could have hurt myself because it's not... Um, it's not very um, straight at the bottom of uh, the path. It's actually quite, um, yeah, all over the place. So I was, I, I, I couldn't believe it. I, I told my husband, I'm like, I just witnessed a miracle. I could have really hurt myself, but I literally felt really supported and put down gently on my feet. So that's why I was asking you if you had the same. Well, 
talk to your angel, find out his or her name. I mean, yeah. take a quiet time and do it. Um, the thing that has impressed me, I mean, he's always with me. And the reason that I began to believe was how many times I've had accidents besides the ladder, you know, breaking. You're riding your bike, you hit ice, and you're flying through the air. And sometimes I'll yell, oh, shit. And I start laughing. So when I've hit the ground, I'm perfectly relaxed and nothing gets hurt or broken. Um, but I know George is there. Let me say why. Several people have seen him standing next to me. Wow. As I was out lecturing, and he was a part of my life, I realized I'm not giving the lecture I wrote down. I would, you know, you make notes, an outline, and I'm looking and I'm realizing you're not following your outline. You're not saying what you wrote down. And a young man came out of the audience one day and said, Standing in front of you for the entire lecture was this man, so I drew his picture for you. And it was George. Oh, wow. He has a beard and, you know, he's not an average looking guy. Um, and I knew then that he was given the talks. Because even my books, you mentioned, he wrote my first book, Love, Medicine, and Miracles. What did I do? I typed out what he told me. Now, how it happened, I didn't realize then what I was doing. But I told people, I'm not a writer. It's the only C I got in college was creative writing. I'm never going to write a book. I'm an artist. They said, well, we'll get somebody to write it. Can you give us the material? So I sat down in front of a tape recorder and talked for hours and hours. I just let it flow out of me. And they gave it to somebody to type out. And, you know, it became a bestseller. But I realized it was George doing the talking through me. So what I said became this wonderful book, and it was his creation. You know, I could give the content, but he put it all together and mm. did it. Because I, I literally never would have written a book if that guy hadn't said to me, you know, you should write a book. You'll help more people than if you're trying to go around talking to everybody. But yeah. I also learned from going how different it is depending on where we live and what neighbors are like. Because I've been to every state in the United States and multiple foreign countries. And you realize what they're like. That the ones who have relationships with neighbors and others are more likely to survive. In other words, in the United States, New York City has a lower survival rate, despite all the wonderful hospitals and everything, than Montana. Mm -hmm. See, why? Because in Montana, everybody knows everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And I was so impressed as I was traveling that I needed to adjust my lecture to these people. You know, they're all friends. They all know each other. Yeah. In New York, what I started doing is insulting people. There's something called the New York Open Center. And I got up many times years ago and would say, oh, and I was born in New York, okay? Uh, I said, 
I can't stand New Yorkers. They're so insensitive and uncaring. And I would go on like that for about 20 minutes. <laughs> and finally, a hand would go up. I'd say, what is it? I paid to come here and you're insulting me. I said, yes. And now that I know you're in touch with your feelings, we'll begin my workshop. And, <laughs> you know, and some people would laugh, but I wanted them to understand that they sat there and took insults. Mm -hmm. I said, if I'd done that in upstate Maine or Montana, they would have been crying and, you know, leaving or talking to me about it. Um, yeah. At the one, I charged me not to keep telling you stories. Um, in this one area, which was everybody was very isolated. If they had a problem where they needed help, they'd blow the horn on their car steadily, not let go of it. And then others would hear it, you know, from a few miles away and, and come to their house. And you're ready to leave. The kid gets on the bicycle and has an accident and he's all banged up. You don't know where to take him. You're in the middle of, you know, Nowhere. new country. Yeah. And the, the dog was in the car. He jumps in the front seat and pushes on the horn. And the noise, you know, radiates out. And within 15 minutes, cars are driving up the driveway. Wow. And I said, why did they know? How did, what did they come here for? And they said, oh, it's what happened because of the dog. That's our signal to neighbors that we need help. We press on the horn. Wow. And so it, those are the things I say that impressed me is I went different places and learned things. And you learn that the survival rate is a hell of a lot better when your neighbor's taking care of you than when some stranger is uh, who doesn't treat you like a person. Yeah, I mean, we we lived in London for a long time, my husband and I. My husband is actually from New York, from Brooklyn. And um, he, you know, we lived basically in cities, right? Like London, New York, the very big cities, as I said, you don't barely know your neighbors. And if you do, everybody's pretty selfish in a city because they're busy. And um, we knew our neighbors in London, but we always thought something happens. It's going to be very difficult for us to have a support system because, um, you know, everybody's busy, very busy. Like they don't really have a life. We didn't have a life. That changed when we got a dog because then we started meeting people who also had dogs and somehow they just made contact, communication and contact with other people a little bit more of a priority. Right than without so that was interesting because yeah. we never knew our neighbors until we got scooby and everybody knew us and we knew everybody yeah we have five children and i know growing up in a zoo made a difference for them and I, i'm not kidding we broke every zoning law and the police never you know reported us because they knew we were doing it out of love mm -hmm. that we weren't just crazy people collecting creatures and even the veterinarians would call me and say, I have this exotic pet from South America that people had and don't want anymore. Will you take it, please? I said, sure, bring it over. So our house was a rescue site for all these animals. <laughs> I'm laughing because so many people would come in the house and say, oh, my God, what's that running across your living room? I said, what are you getting upset about? 
this creature. I said, yeah, it's a pet. It's not, you know, a rat or a mouse. Or a, it's a pet. And, and again, how intelligent they were. There are many times I'd sit on the sofa reading a book, okay, trying to study, learn something. And the rabbit, who was named Smudge Bunny, would jump up on the sofa, walk over to me, grab the book in her teeth, and throw it on the floor. <laughs> and I knew she was saying, pet me, who gives a damn about a book? <laughs> no. I mean, it was obvious. It was thoughtful action from her looking for love. You know, yeah. whether they sleep, oh, and one that happened, I mentioned my wife died. Uh, she died in 20, what was it, 18. So it's, you know, it'll be five years in January, mm -hmm. 2023. But um, now what was I going to tell you? Because thinking about Something my Something about the animals. Um... Is, oh, yeah. When she died. I was blown away. Two cats, Princess and Hope, took my wife's place. Now, you may think that's a crazy statement. You get in bed, boom. They're there. Cat jumps in bed with you. You lie down on the recliner in the living room, the other cat jumps in you. I knew they had divided up the house into areas in which they would take care of me. Mm. And it was incredible. And they haven't stopped. And it's almost five years. You know, yeah. they're there loving me. Yeah. Supporting and you. Never done it to me before. You know, yeah. it's like my wife was their buddy. Oh, and then this was hysterical. One morning, Princess, I mean, Hope, jumps out of bed with me and starts making a racket. It never happened. I, I'm wondering what the hell has happened in the house. She's trying to tell me something. So we start walking to the kitchen. And when we get to the door of the kitchen, there's a dead chipmunk. And I knew what she was telling me then. I made breakfast for you. Now that your wife is dead, I'll take care of breakfast. So here is your breakfast. And I said to her, I don't eat chipmunks, so please don't, don't kill them and bring them in. And she stopped doing that because she used to, you know, give me gifts. Like when she went out at night and I would talk to her through my mind, come on back to the kitchen door, you know, dangerous out there in the woods. She'd be there with a little chipmunk. But this one in the kitchen when my wife died was a real big creature. You know, I mean, it was a real breakfast. And uh, she was doing me a favor, see? and it's just amazing. But you know that they're thinking, all these animals, uh, you know, from Miracle on. They all had their own special name and their own special behavior, and, uh, and they lived in the house. I mean, we didn't have, you know, rules and regulations. We knew we could talk to them, and uh, they would get the message and live the message. And e even, I mean, we broke zoning laws, which I didn't even know about until people told me, do you know you're breaking all the zoning laws? Um, I said, I didn't know that. But the police never reported us. And I realized it's because when they had to come to the house for something, uh, they knew 
we were doing it because we cared, mm. not because we were fanatics or nutcases. We cared about these creatures. So they never, you know, we had a skunk. I learned that was, you know, against the rules. We had it de-skunked, so it wasn't a problem. Um, snakes. Oh, I'll tell you, what taught me about love the most were the, um, oh, chick, not chickens, but, um, well, we had some chickens, but geese uh, we had, and um, we kept an area outside for them with fencing. But when they'd lay eggs, we'd bring the eggs in and put them in basically a fish tank and let them hatch in there. So when they hatched, I realized later, who did they see? Our children. So who did they imprint on? Our kids. You know, ducks and geese and all kinds of eggs that popped open. Oh, there's mom and dad. And it was always our kids. The school year started after we started doing that. And our kids would go get on the bus. We live on a circle. So it's, it's sort of a different environment. The buses would go around. The kids would go down and get on. And I noticed the ducks and geese went with them. And when the bus pulls up, they tried to get on the bus with our kids. <laughs> the drivers didn't get mad at me, you know, because they were all smiling about it. But it, it really impressed on me because when we released a lot of them, some of them at a lake my parents lived on, the first day after we left them at their house, my mother's house and father's house, I got a phone call. I have a question for you. What is it, Mom? Why did the ducks and geese come out of the lake and walk all the way up to the road every time there's a school bus? Oh, they were looking for I said, your Mom, you're breaking my heart. They're looking for our children. Oh, But that's when you realize how connected we become with other living things. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, when they know you're coming from the right place, they treat you differently, and we treat others differently uh, than that. And as I said, with squirrels and skunks and rabbits and God knows how many weird creatures we had in the house, even turtles in, in the pond, and you know, kiddie pool. Uh, you can imagine what our house was like. I even, I keep showing people, I built fence, I mean, um, ladders in the living room out of wood going up to the top of various closets and cabinets because there were so many of them, if they wanted some privacy or to get a nap, they could climb the ladder and go into this little, you know, shack I made for them and take a nap. Um, and it was just how I felt, you know, about them. That they don't have to fight or get upset that they can't get any rest uh, to do that. And, and then, did, uh, did your wife also love animals like you do? Yeah. Yeah. And as I say, that cat miracle, um, you know, was my teacher and my help. Because I really took her everywhere. Uh, you know, hospitals, nursing homes, everything. And everybody fell in love with her. Mm -hmm. And in the car. See, again, what impressed me 
if I didn't pay attention to where we were driving, Miracle would poke me with a pause on the shoulder or on the hand and say, watch the road. Wow. I mean, I knew what she was telling me because if I looked to the side, you know, boom. Um, she didn't go to sleep in the back like most of the cats did. She would sit next to me. I built a shelf on the door next to me as the driver because she would sit there and, you know, I gave her a special place to be. And your uh, co-pilot. Yeah, and she would sit there and take care of me and keep me watching everything. Yeah. She maybe was embodying an angel, but in a form in a, in a form of a fur baby. <laughs> it was something very, very special. Yeah, I know when you meet. Well, I mean, especially as we are, we we are basically rescuing so many dogs here. They just abandon them and they don't treat them very well. Um, one thing is they, their behavior, their characters are shining through when you let them and you give them the safety, you know. And uh, it's true, they speak to you and they have the most amazing uh, personalities that then, you know, start realizing, wow, they're so, like, it's not just animals acting like animals. They really have a personality. They have feelings. They talk. They express themselves. It's the most beautiful thing. And talk to them. That's why that book, Straight from the Horse's Mouth, yeah. I mean, you know, I thought she was nuts and making it all up. Two cats disappeared at different times in Connecticut. So I send Amelia an email because I thought she'll never be able to tell me where they are. I said, these cats have disappeared. She was in California one time, Africa the other time. Within two days, I get an email from her telling me where the cats are. Wow. And she was describing the houses. One was at our son's house, one was at our house. There's no way she can tell me what my house looks like. She's never been in it. She's looking through this cat's eyes. And one, and in both cases, that she was right. I went out and got the cats right away. But the one that I found fascinating, she said, the cat's under the house. I thought, Amelia, what are you talking about? A cat can't get under a house. But she described this thing that looked like a cage. And I realized what it was. It was a stairway off the house that had strips of wood coming down to the ground. And this was an indoor cat. And what she had done was squeezed into that cage like you know, area to protect herself since she was outdoors now. Mm. And so after I got the email, I went over there. Because to say that cat is under the house, I thought, what are you, nuts? You don't get under a house. She was under that part of the house uh, that, as I say, was like a cage. And it protected her because no, you know, coyote is going to get in there. It's, it's too narrow. But a little cat was able to squeeze in. And I brought her out and put her in the house. Wow. That's what impresses me and proves to me about consciousness. You know, that we can see what's in others, what's going on uh, to help them, what's the right treatment, what's going on in your body, what choices should you make. So when people draw these pictures, it's absolutely incredible. One of my books is called The Art of Healing. And if people are interested in seeing examples, uh, 
yes, there's a drawing and then a discussion of it, mm. you see. So to make it simple, if you said, oh, I'm going to go have chemotherapy, what do you think of my drawing? If it's the devil giving me poison, all drawn in black, I say, I do not think this is a good choice for you. You either change your treatment or change your attitude, see. Whereas if it was a beautiful picture with lots of color, I'd say, yeah, you know, it's like a rainbow. Go ahead. And the other is when people are ready to die. In my house, I have some of the drawings. This child was quite ill and the mother was not given up, but she was taking the kid everywhere. And I said to her, why don't you stop? Let her go. Because... You know, what you're doing, running around the world trying to find a cure, it's not working. And how do you think she's feeling? So I said, take her home. And she took her home. I said, I want to tell you why I'm saying this. She put in a purple balloon. And I know purple is a spiritual color. She's ready to go. It was another face in the drawing of a child crying and I thought that doesn't fit with the kid who's dying. You know, I said, who's this? She said, that's not me. That's the kid in the next room crying. That's what's so fascinating. You see, when there's something in the drawing that was confusing me, she explained it. It's the kid in the next room. That's why it doesn't fit in my drawing. <laughs> there's one thing to the mother. There are eight flowers. I don't know what the eight means, but it's something. She takes her home. Eight days later, phone call. Bernie, today is my birthday. Amber woke up and said, Mom, I'm dying today as a gift to you to free you from all the trouble. And, she, and I have that drawing in my house because the mother gave it to me as a gift. You know, I have ones where the husband is flying a kite with a that's purple. I said to his wife, He's ready to go, you know, let him go. I mean, he's hanging on because he doesn't want to upset you. But she said, honey, I've cut the string. If you need to go, it's okay. Boom. You know, a couple of days later, he's gone. Yeah. Wow. So if you, I mean, you have so many stories and you're a wonderful storyteller, so we could be here for hours. Well, numbers have meaning. I mean, people yeah. have to remember that. Yeah. And, but I want, I wanted to ask you of your patients that you helped or saw or guided to heal, who, who is the most memorable? I mean, I know they all are, but the one that really impressed you, the one that really you felt, wow, you know, what a strength, what a miracle you know, someone that really was out of this world. It, I mean, there are so many. It's, <laughs> it's really hard to pick one out. Um, but I, I think it, it's the ones who didn't resist me. You know what I mean? Mm. When you say draw a picture, um, they're not afraid to. They're, it's not about oh, I'm not an artist, it won't look nice. Um, they're learning about themselves from me. And, uh, you know, they're not looking to me to do the work, but to them. And uh, some of the ones 
are, were people with, you know, permanent disabilities. There's one young woman who had neurological problems and others, and uh, she was like my co-therapist because she's living this life and had a beautiful attitude and smile. And so, you know, she would sit in the office with me. I had a lot of people in the office. Um, I, I said what my partner said, right, about you're gone. Yeah, yeah. I did. Yeah. And so these people were in my office helping others, you see. Mm. Um, you know, in a sense, they became therapists because they were living a problem, you know, where I might not have been. But also my office didn't look like a doctor's office. A lot of times people would come in and say, this is your office. It doesn't look like a doctor's office because the colors on the wall, pictures, uh, books, all kinds of things that you might not see in a doctor's office. What yeah. a looking sterile. Right. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, that, I think that's the environment yeah, I, that makes people yeah. feel at ease, you know. I do. I, I try to live what they taught me, mm. loving my body. Um, you know, I'm, I don't try to not die. Okay. Yeah, I take healthy diet, supplements. I'm trying to nourish my body and feel healthy. It's not that I'm trying not to die. It's that I'm trying to enjoy living. Yeah. And of, um, are you still in touch with some of your uh, your patients? Because, you know, one thing that I think is different about having a relationship like you have created with those humans is that, you know, normally doctors see you, that you're a number, and then they never see you again yeah. unless they have to. But you you sound like you're creating these relationships. Yeah, you know, yeah. It has gone on for years, especially in the support groups and other places. I don't see many of them now. I mean, I'll get emails and others uh, because it's a lot of years, you know, that I've been doing this. So some of them have died of natural causes, um, but um, they're still there. We still connect. Um and they're still supporting me because I keep picturing them and the lessons they've taught me. And so it's like they're immortal in terms of what they've taught, uh, even though they're not here, their words are and their examples are. Um, it's quite something. Yeah. Wow. That's never consider themselves as victims. Mm. You know, that they were always there to help others and do things for them. And uh, they benefited too uh, because of how good they felt doing these things. So many of them in the office with me, um, you know, working with people, um, and um, it made a difference. It wasn't a normal, yeah, because a lot of times people come in and say, this doesn't feel like a doctor's office. <laughs> um, you know, what it smelled like, what the colors were like, uh, all those things. Yeah, because, you know, you go in, because there are times I go into a doctor's office and it's so cold. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's so terrible. It's terrible. Yeah. It. Yeah. Maybe yeah, it's, it's not pleasant. Lucky. Yeah. But I uh, know. Even the fact that there's no plans. I'm like, well, you need plans in here. <laughs> Just plans. Yeah. <laughs> That's know? why. Oh, one other. I don't know. I don't think I mentioned him. 
um, he was a landscaper. Oh, you did. You did say the story did that he didn't that. die. Yeah, you did. He became my therapist in, in terms of going in the woods with him, walking, yeah. seeing how beautiful nature was. So, yeah, the patients became my therapist, too. Yeah. 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 When he had his he died in his 90s, when he had his 70th wedding anniversary, I went there um, to speak because I wanted everybody there to know what a wonderful couple they were with 70 years of marriage and uh, no cancer, you know, all these things that he had done. Wow. Had done. John Florio, landscaper. That's <laughs> beautiful. And um, I believe you also co-authored a book with your, um, with your uh, grandchild, uh, Charlie. Oh, yeah, all the poetry. I, the Charlie... I was emailing him about some of the things I've written, poems, different things I've experienced. And I noticed what he's sending me back. It's like I'm talking to myself. Um, he's into photography, emotions. Uh, on my Facebook, he often puts in, you know, photographs he's taken and the beauty of them. And so we developed a relationship because it's like, I'm talking to myself. This is wonderful. I'm not having a problem, you know, with a grandchild who thinks I'm crazy. And so we wrote a book. I don't know if I have a copy. Yeah. It's been sitting here for a long time. Um, the title is all that up for you. When you realize how beautiful everything, everything. is, Perfect. Um, a conversation about life between grandfather and grandson. Oh. And uh, so we're often, you know, reading poetry to people on different shows. Um, but I always felt Charlie was more like an 80 or 90 year old. Uh, he's into, I'd say, mysticism, um, oh, the different, you know, I, I forgot the names of uh, the different cultures but and you know china and japan and all the things that are going on because he's been there to learning uh about various you know body and mind things and uh, doing them himself and having these teachers uh you know the ones teaching meditations and lifestyle and everything else and i realized yeah that they're teaching what i learned Mm. The same. So a lot of times Charlie will, you know, get us to have lunch together or something and meet and talk to them. And it's a pleasure because you're finally talking to somebody who agrees with you, you know, not you're crazy. Do you, other... still, do you still find that people think that you're crazy? Because I feel like more no. of us are waking up to this yes, reality. It's not like, as I said, I don't know where the magazine is, but uh, New York magazine that I had lying here for a long time and it the top headline on the cover of the magazine is controversial I mean I'm sorry interview with the controversial Dr. Bernie Siegel that was the first article done about me in a magazine or newspaper and it was just saying you know how crazy I am all these things when when did it happen? Yeah. Oh, before I'd written anything. And, you know, we have to talk about 40 
years ago or something. Mm. Um, in the 80s. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 you know, my mother thought it was a wonderful article because she saw her son's name on a magazine cover. So she was proud of me. But I said, Mom, it's not a wonderful article. You know, there it's it's all criticism. Um, but it ended because of what the future brought. But what you remind me of is I get a call from Oprah Winfrey after Love, Medicine, and Miracles came out. And she said, we'd like you to be on our show. I thought, wow, that's wonderful. I get there. There are six doctors sitting on the stage to criticize me and what I'm doing. The, hold on. Did she set oh, it up so that you had people? told me we're going to have other doctors here to tell you you're nuts. Mm -hmm. um, the audience was more on my side. And Oprah was sort of in the middle. I mean, she wasn't. But I could tell she wanted to have an exciting show. So it wasn't about whether I agree with Bernie or not. It's I want to have a dynamic, exciting show. So these guys are yelling, making noise. And shortly thereafter, I was number one on the New York Times bestseller list. You know, we sold a few million copies because of that show where everybody was yelling at me. Yeah, she did you a favor. She didn't know. But I don't think it was nice to put you in that situation without you yeah. knowing, you know. But I mean, she yeah. had me back. And I knew then what to expect and everything. But mm. what was interesting, Phil Donahue called me up. Would you be on our show? Would you bring three women with cancer with you? I thought, wow, that's great. Yes, we'll be there. We showed up and I started to walk up on the stage, you know, in front of the cameras. And Phil said, no, Bernie, you're sitting in the audience. There's a seat for you. The women are going to be on the stage. And I thought, wow, he knows what I'm talking about. He's read my book and he agrees with me. And it was so different. See, here are these women teaching everybody in the audience. Their experience. I could contribute from the audience mm -hmm. and agree with them. Yeah. I love and that. And you think of Oprah, let's have an exciting show. It's not, it's not about what I teach people. It's having an exciting show. Yeah, it's wonderful. She sold millions of copies of my book. But um, it, it was so frustrating to be there with all these doctors who aren't going to agree with me. And no matter what I said, they tell me I'm nuts. Yeah. yeah. Well, they, they've been proven wrong. And, yeah, and uh, they hadn't been sick. You see, if they've yeah. been sick they would have said, yeah, I've had the experience. I know what he's talking about. You know, there is a, there is a spiritual disconnect, sadly, in the medical field with um, health as a, you know, per se. Um, a lot of doctors do not actually understand health. They, you mentioned at the beginning, actually, they, they study pathologies and how to handle the symptoms, but they don't understand health, you know, that vibrancy that comes from within, the regeneration of our entire being, a cellular level. And this is why a lot of doctors don't look healthy. They don't look happy. And, you know, if they don't embody those things themselves, then they can never teach 
anybody and they can never really practice medicine they can right. only practice really you know disease management and that's yeah, a sad not, part of our system live the experience yeah and i did a lot of children's surgery too and they were wonderful teachers because i uh, our kids used to get upset with me because i say oh i lie to the children all the time why do you lie to them what i meant was it was like hypnotizing them mm. i mean a typical example okay they have to have blood drawn or an injection okay and i'd go into the kid and say oh you're lucky they invented a new sponge it cleans your skin and it makes it numb so you're not going to feel a needle yeah i would take it i'd rub their skin and then they'd say to me oh why don't the other doctors do that <laughs> it was amazing 80% of the kids felt nothing the others would say oh i felt it but it was not the same it wasn't oh that was awful yeah i felt it so you know it it as i say i used lies in a hip, in a therapeutic way sometimes you need to sometimes you need to there's no you know one thing actually these years you know fear makes things so much worse and for a child that especially if they're not healthy you don't want to pump them with fear you want them to be as positive as possible not just children but i'm right. talking you know of course children are much more susceptible and um they are at the early stages of learning behavior which is why giving them these positive feedbacks is so important is so important but um you know the last three years that we had like with this pandemic people not touching each other not loving each other there's this division between thoughts and and opinions and we we were just pumped with fear 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 i have seen so many people get sick or sicker from these emotions rather than actually you know the virus per se and it's really fascinating how even when we talked about when they were talking about things to make health better nobody actually talks about this human contact this connection everything was about stay away 5 meters from each other don't talk to anyone wear a mask so we can't see your features it's it was the opposite what of what health actually is right so it's it's really in interesting have you seen a an escalation of disease or since the period because of the behavior rather than the virus it's it's how yes it's how we behave uh if everybody's depressed and feeling terrible yeah you're more likely to get sick mm. you know and whether that's covid or cancer or anything else mm. so i don't walk around with fear because i know what that does to my immune system mm. i walk around expecting the best results and my body has a more active immune function than somebody who's depressed and what you know what's happened to them in their lives and etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah oh so, you know it's that's not blaming people because i always wanted to understand that see monday morning we have more heart attacks strokes suicides and illnesses now that's how people feel about their work and what they're doing that's not blaming them but what it's saying is why don't you get a job you enjoy because when i have so many stories that get people laughing when people did things 
expecting to die and I was not invited to the funeral. Yeah, you don't. <laughs> they answered the phone when I called up to tell me, oh, so beautiful here. Oh, I loved it. Uh, yeah, I forgot to die. Um, and so I, I, you know, learned that. And those are the choices that people need to make. Mm. So that's why Monday ain't a very nice day unless you love what you're doing. And the Absolutely. people. And that's your attitude. I mean, I always say you can change your life or change your attitude. You can keep doing the same thing and decide to be happy by interacting with the people. Yeah. Oh, one of my other crazy things I recommend to people to do. How are you today? I'm depressed. I've run out of my antidepressant and my doctor's on vacation, so I can't refill my prescriptions. Watch how many people offer you their antidepressants. See if it can help. Because I, the first time I did that as a joke in Stop and Shop at the cashier counter, I turned around and the line of people waiting, they were holding out their pocketbooks and their drugs to say, maybe these will help you. Maybe these will help you. Oh, my God. Oh, and in the post are... office the other day, because I try to train people, when I come in and say, you're looking very well today, don't ask me, how are you? Well, there's a new employee. How are you today? I'm depressed, etc. I got poked in the back. I turn around. I'm a psychiatrist. Here's my card. Maybe I can help you. I treat depression. <laughs> I busted out laughing. And everybody in the post office, you know, on the COVID line, and this was months ago, is looking at me like, what a rude man. She wants to help him, and he's laughing. And I had to explain to everybody, I'm kidding. But it just shows you, you know, how many people have these problems. We need to help each other. Yeah. Yeah. That is a big problem here in Portugal. I didn't realize up to now how many people are actually suffering from depression and our medication. And how many yeah. children are suffering from anxiety and are on um, our medication as well, as well as um, what is classified as ADHD, which... I'm quite, I'm quite sure it's hyperactivity because they bloody bored at school. But, yeah. you know, <laughs> so. What, see, if we brought up children to be loved, mm. this would be a different world. I mean that. Mm. That's why I wrote articles about, tell Donald Trump, I love you. Mm. You won't know what this, and this really happened. I didn't tell you this. We're in heavy traffic in Cape Cod. There's a kid in the car, a teenager, with his girlfriend screaming and yelling about the traffic. And I'm the car in front of him. I mean, it was horrendous. I got out of my car and went over to a police officer. I said, tell him to be quiet. It's not my job. I couldn't believe a police officer would say it's not his job to quiet this kid shouting and screaming and cursing. I went to his car. Of course, our kids are always yelling at me. They can have a gun. This is not the first time I've done this. I walk over to his car. The window was partway down. I said, I want you to know something. I love you. I'm sorry your parents don't. And then I went back to my car. He stopped screaming, made a U-turn, and drove home. Wow. I'm sure he drove home to talk to his parents. I really hope yeah. so. 
the ultimate of that is on my answering machine. Dr. Siegel, I want to commit suicide. You have Jack Kevorkian's phone number. I called her up. I said, no, I don't have Jack Kevorkian's phone number, but why do you want to commit suicide? Oh, I've been abused by my father and I have a brain tumor and I have all kinds of problems and I want to be dead. I said, I want you to know, Becky, I love you. And if you want me to help you, I'll be your father. I became her CD. That's a chosen dad. There are other people who have told me that in the office too. You know, there's a bonus dad. So you're either a CD or a BD. <laughs> um, and Becky's alive today. I just sent her an email about I love you and Christmas because um, she had sent me a card saying she didn't feel very well. Um, but she's wonderful. And we even have met. She's down in Texas. Um, but those people who have been in my office have taught me what your love can do. You can reparent people. So let them know you need a father, you need a mother. Right, I'll be that. And what a difference it makes. But if you haven't grown up with love, and I've done this on the streets with violent people who could have had guns, you know, screaming and yelling and running around. I go up to them. Of course, our kids don't appreciate that. They're always worried you could get shot, you know. But I go up and I say, I want you to know something. I love you. I'm sorry for what you've been through. I'm sorry if your parents don't. I've had a 100% positive response to that. And my book is 365 Prescriptions for the Soul. Because yeah. every day there's another message. And that's one of them, you know, to help people get through the year. And every one of them has been grateful to me and walked away quietly. And boy, the thank yous I get from the people in the parking lots and, you know, markets and things. Oh, thank you, thank you. I was so afraid of what was gonna happen. Um, but the love made a difference. So would you say that that's the miracle, love? Yeah. Beautiful. You know, I, I, if I'm going to die, I'd rather die saying I love you than I hate you, you horrible person. And I remember reading stories about concentration camp survivors. See, I was looking for help from survivors to teach my patients. Mm -hmm. And the concentration camp survivors were teaching the same thing. How do you survive? You help, you know, your other victims. Help them. And there were so many wonderful stories about giving your place up because you thought it was better. And because of that, you stay alive. Not the person you gave your place to, but you. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, it's no coincidence that that happens. Yeah, that's another. I hear Elizabeth Kugler-Ross with her Swiss accent, Barney. 
There are no coincidences. <laughs> That's another Jung statement. The future is unconsciously prepared long in advance, hmm. therefore can be guessed by clairvoyance. Yeah. I read something fantastic that we, we are in a time loop anyway, so it, it's inevitable that what happens has really happened already. Um, I Well, when somebody said to me over the phone, because I was so busy, why are you living this life? I said, oh, my God. She said, what is it? I saw myself with a sword killing people when you said that. I must have been a warrior and a killer. And maybe that's why I became a surgeon, to help with the knife. And I know that's true because I went into a trance on a cross-country flight when I was alone. A rare time my wife didn't come. And I saw myself killing her and her dog in her room at night. And the reason was I didn't have faith. I was told by my Lord, once I kill the neighbor's daughter, why don't I kill him? Because he was causing a problem. Um, and he said, no, I want you to kill her, teach him a lesson. And what if I don't? I'll kill you. So I went and killed her. I said to him, are you happy now? I didn't do it. You did it. Hey, I went to get therapy. Mm. And what was the lesson? You keep saying, my Lord. Yes, the Lord of the castle. No, it's your Lord. Mm. I said, wow. I always wondered about Jesus and Abraham. and Why didn't they, you know, deny the Lord? See, if I were Jesus, I would have jumped off the cross and said, look what I can do. Now pay attention to me. They, and Abraham would have said, take me, leave the kid alone. But they didn't. They yeah. weren't trusting it, God. It bothered me to read them until this happened. So I went home and my Lord, you know, to relive it, my Lord said, go kill the neighbor's daughter. Okay, I'm going. No, I needed to know I, you had faith in me. Bring them here so we can resolve this problem. And what yeah. was the resolution? We got married. See, what happens then? We're one family. The land we're fighting over is a gift to you two. Nothing to fight over anymore. It's all wow. family. Wow. My wife. I mean, you know, her appearance. It was her. Mm. I knew it. And uh, it was incredible. Just because somebody said to me over the phone, why are you living this life? I went into a trance. And uh, I mean, the whole thing didn't happen at that moment, but I could feel something take over me. And then, as I say, when I'm flying for three hours with only, you know, jet sounds and no people to talk to, I went into that trance and saw the whole thing. Yeah. And uh, there's no coincidence. No, it's always the one. See, how did my wife and I meet? We were both counselors in a camp. She's a beautiful woman, young lady. I never would have asked her for a date because she was too beautiful to go out with me. And we were standing at this camp pool watching the kids, you know, to be sure they're safe. Mm. And I said to her, it's nice that the pool's open at night. So if it's a hot night, you can come and take a swim. Because this was in our neighborhood. 
And um, she said to me, are you asking me for a date? And I wasn't. But of course I said, yes, yes. Because <laughs> I didn't think she'd ever go out with me, you know, in terms of her level <laughs> of quality in mine. But she said, all right. So that night we had a date. And she's always late her whole life, including the first date. And um, so the pool was closing, I said. So we sat and talked for hours in the club and end up getting married. That is just beautiful. And, and you see, you could say there's no coincidence. What if I hadn't said something about the pool? She well, was... you know, you say a lot of the things you say come from George. I'm quite sure George probably <laughs> leads you to say the right things at the right time, <laughs> including with your wife. <laughs> yeah, and oh, and the other, <clears throat> when I spoke at a Christian funeral here in Connecticut, Alva Worrell, who is a mystic and has written some wonderful books that I recommend to everybody, because of the mystical things that she had happen to her as a child. I mean, you couldn't deny things, you know, talking about people who weren't there, but were there. In, in, well, it's like in one house they were in with her family. She said, who's the old lady sitting on the sofa? And they said, there is no old lady sitting on the sofa. And she said, yes, and described this lady. And the reaction was, oh, that's grandma. This was her house. She died. Um, well, I speak at the Christian funeral. Alga says to me, as everybody's leaving, Bernie, are you Jewish? I said, what does that have to do with anything? Because I spoke at a Christian funeral. No, there's a rabbi sitting next to you. And she described George in total detail. That's why he was wearing my, the clothes. My guide, yeah. And that's when I understood his clothing. Mm. Not wearing a prayer. I mean, see, he's dressed like somebody in, you know, say, 1900. Um, in terms of, because I have pictures of relatives who were like what Alga said, you know, a cap on the head, not a little prayer, you know, cloth. Um and the religious garments that he was wearing. It, it just was a strange appearance when I first met him. Mm. Um, and here she is telling me why that is, because she said, are you Jewish? And wow. But that's why the mystical people who can see these things, it's really impressive. Yeah, I wish I had a gift like that. Well, wow, okay, doctor, well. I say, just keep drawing pictures, you'll get that mystical information One i have story. to i have to yeah everybody in the hospital thought i was crazy except for the patients who were treated as if they were crazy say you have a heart lung transplant and literally she wrote a book called the change of heart the person whose heart and lungs are in you comes to you in a dream talks to you explains things to you everybody in the hospital thought the lady was crazy so I got Paige to come and visit her by her. And many other patients would say, come to my room, please. Or would come to my office and say, I know I can talk to you because you're not a normal doctor. And so I also tell people, if you have a mystical experience, talk about it. It doesn't matter if somebody says that's crazy. One day something will happen to them and they'll call you and say, I realize now it wasn't crazy. 
let me tell you what happened to me. Yeah. So it's part of why I became who I was because they knew I wasn't normal. I mean, you shave your head in the 19, mid 1960s or 70s. Yeah, it was 70s, I think. Um, and everybody in the hospital lined up to talk to me because they knew he's nuts. Look what he just did. Um, and it was incredible. But what an advantage it was to me when I realized what it was about and why. Yeah. And keep doing that. And it opens up your life. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, what I mean, was I to tell you? Do you remember? And then I got off on all these other stories. No, that was actually, you, you were telling me this last story because uh, you, you asked me to draw so that I can remember, I can see those, those things. And uh, I was going to tell you that um, that's a good advice. And I'm trying to really go, I'm doing the Akashic Records right now to like try and remember because I've been having these dreams and I'm trying to remember a few things. And I'm doing a lot of uh, constellation, family constellation for ancestral healing. I'm doing quite a few things. And I think the drawing, the drawing was brought up to my attention in one of my dreams. So I need to start drawing. Um, it's just that I think life sometimes can get to you so I became very rational, but I used to have a lot of mystical things happening. And I still do, but I don't notice this as, as much. I, I have to pay really attention now. Uh, and I have to just really get out of my head because my rational brain tries to take over. I don't know if it makes sense. But, you know, when I, when I hear you speak, when I see your work, it's just a reminder and it's very soothing. It's exactly what I need, you know, like in this journey. Um, so I really wish that we lived closer and that you could be my... My CD. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I still get invited all around the world, but I don't have the energy to go. You know, uh, yeah, what I would tell people now is if you send me a private jet, I'll come. Because going through airports and all that, uh, I just don't have the energy. Yeah. I don't I mind being you. on a plane with people, but getting there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there was one time my wife, uh, had some bladder problems. So we're going to fly cross country. And she said, I've got to use the bathroom. I said, honey, they're boarding the plane. I can't wait. So she ran off to use the bathroom. I get up to the plane and I said to the guy, you can't leave. My wife is in the bathroom. We have to go and, you know, give a lecture, medical reasons and they said, we can't hold the plane for you. We have to close the door. I said, I'm going to lie down in the door. <laughs> you know, everybody's looking at me like, what is it, crazy? You know, fortunately, there were no cops with guns there. Um, I said, if you let me, if you, if you hold the plane, I'll get my wife and bring her here quickly. The guy said, okay, all right. Because they realize if I'm crazy, they didn't want to get into trouble. So I went around the whole airport yelling, Bobby, Bobby. Finally, I hear from a bathroom, what is it? They're taking the plane and leaving. You got to come out. So she came out in a couple of minutes. We went. The best part of this whole thing is we get on the plane, which has been delayed, say, because of my wife. What do you think all the passengers did? And they had heard me yell. They all got up and applauded. We got on the plane and they all <laughs> So it was so wonderful. We were all friends, you know, and we sat down and off we flew. 
Nobody was yelling at us. They were applauding. What oh, we that's did. brilliant. That's yeah. so brilliant. Oh, thank you so much, Bernie. Any, if you have to leave us with one word of wisdom for people that whether oh, are facing illness or not. When you live in your heart, magic happens. I love that. Thank and the you other, so oh, what was I going to say? Oh, boy. I can't remember now. It was one more thing to do. But it, 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 again, I'd say live in your heart and let it make up your mind. Because more people with cancer told me that's what they put on their refrigerator. Not because of me, but, you know, about their feelings. And when they did that, then good things happened. So true. All right. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to have you here. I'll close with these three things from my parents. Number one, do what makes you happy. Number two, something goes wrong. God is redirecting you. Something good will come of it. And what's the point of life? To make things easier for other people. Amen. And I see this because I have lent people money. And because they were, you know, in real trouble. And they'll give you written statements about when we'll pay you back and everything else. And they've never paid me back. And I always thank my father for what he's done for me. Because, yeah, I could call a lawyer and I could scream and yell. But I know that if I just say, okay, let it go, I feel better. Mm -hmm. Winning the case in court. Yeah, and screwing up somebody's life who desperately needed help. So I'd say look for your angel and try to be an angel to help people. And then you'll feel good. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you so, so much. I love you, Bernie. Thank you. I love you too. Thank you so much, Dr. Siegel, and thank you everyone for staying on the episode. I cannot tell you how full my heart is, full of gratitude for this wonderful human being. I really think that Dr. Siegel is an earth angel, and I had tears in my eyes the whole time that we recorded today, especially when there were some stories that he was sharing, because you can just feel that it comes from a place of true love, and I absolutely adore Dr. Siegel. So I hope that you enjoyed it too, and that you have you know, a smile on your face as I do and that you go out there and get yourself Dr. Siegel's books because they will really help you and the people around you. I feel that this human has made a huge impact on this planet and this is why he was here. I cannot just, I cannot say any, you know, there are no words to describe how I feel about Dr. Siegel because there's just love. So guys, join me next week. As always, if you love this episode, please do share it, review it give us feedback so we can keep on growing i have amazing guests coming here giving their time for you to really find inspiration and i hope that you do so until then bye